Welcome to Chasing Expectations, a podcast where we explore how our cultural backgrounds have influenced our career paths. I'm Kathy. And I'm Douglas. Today we're joined by Aaron, an urban planner with the city of Vancouver and a second generation Chinese Canadian. Aaron shares his journey to a career in planning, how this historically predominantly white field has evolved, and what it means to be a community connector. Yeah, so I'm an urban planner. Um, I have been working at the city in particular uh, for about four and a half, almost five years now. And so it's been great. I So far, so good. I'm still loving it. It feels like there's something new every day. So I'm happy to talk about it. So our listeners can understand it a little bit better about what a city planner does. Can you describe what a typical day in your work life is like? Yeah, for sure. I Why don't I take a step back and just talk about what the field of planning is? Because it's one of those things that's very vast and very broad and very diverse. And so when I went to school, you know, we had people who were biologists, we had people who were historians, we had people who were computer engineers. And um, now they are doing things from working in, you know, environmental nonprofits to doing uh, transportation planning for major infrastructure to, you know, talking to communities about uh, how to support cultural businesses. And so you really see how this is a field that, you know, does all sorts of things in many different fields. I, in particular, I work in the municipal setting. And so, you know, I work for the local government. um, And a lot of my focus has been on community planning. And so um, that's not what every planner does. In my case, uh, what it means is I do a lot of you know, talking to community about what they want in the long term for their city, right? And so this involves things like what does development look like, issues such as housing and affordability, looking at things like uh, very intangible things like the, the loss of sense of belonging, or how can we support people who are struggling? Um, how can we make sure everyone has opportunity? So it's these kind of big questions that we deal with. And one of the you know, interesting things about that is you hear from everybody about what they're interested in, what is important to them. And it's kind of your job to bring it into the gigantic machinery of municipal government and try to make something happen. It sounds like your area of planning is very grassroots. You're involved with the uh, community a lot. How do you think that your culture, well, maybe uh, stepping back, what is your cultural background, first of all? Absolutely. So My uh, cultural background is Chinese. My parents immigrated from Macau in the 80s, and I was born here. Okay. And how do you feel that cultural background has impacted your work in planning? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting question, because the field of planning is a historically and, you know, currently very white. It's very, you know, colonial. It was basically in Vancouver, the reason we have the practice of planning was to divvy up what they saw, white, what white European settlers saw as empty land, basically, so that, you know, landowners working for the CPR could have a nice estate in what was then the suburb of Shaughnessy, so they could get away from the industry in the downtown area. And so, you know, you see this legacy in the kind of old school ways we do planning, where it's about like, you know, make sure your lawn is this big, make sure your house has these kind of features, right? And so, one of the things that the field of planning is going through right now is looking at itself to say, 
you know, does this approach work for everybody? I think it's pretty clear, you know, that there are many ways in which it isn't working for people. If you're low income, right? If you're, for example, a uh, ethnic or cultural minority. And so that has been very relevant for my work in planning up until the uh, end of 2019. Um, I did some work on the Chinatown planning team in Vancouver. And so obviously my cultural background was re relevant there, not just to you know understand the community and why it's important, but also to help think through why the field of planning seemed to be failing at supporting cultural businesses, the cultural you know, needs of that area, why it was different. Yeah, because, you know, once again, that old school way of doing planning doesn't acknowledge that minority cultures exist, right? If anything, they were trying to assimilate or eliminate completely uh, minority cultures. And so for us, it was a matter of like thinking through wait, what are the values, the underlying values of the Chinatown community that make it different that we need to really, you know, make the foundation of the planning work that we're doing and the community engagement we're doing. And that is something that it really helps to be from that cultural background. For sure. Did you find that your degree emphasized that at all? Um, the cultural aspects of planning, especially in the municipal um, realm, because it is a very on the ground level of government? Um, that's a good question. Like, I would say my schooling uh, in planning was at the School of Community and Regional Planning at UBC. And while there was an emphasis on, you know, the need to be reflective about planning and to realize that, you know, you can't just be a technical expert and we don't have all the perspectives, the specifics of like how to do that, whether it's from an indigenous lens or, you know, in my case, like as a Chinese person or just other ways of doing planning, right? You know, um, focusing on people with disabilities and accessibility, for example, those end products aren't defined yet because they're still being created, right? The field is starting to look at itself more deeply. And so I don't think it's something that um, it's like at school, here's the class on how to do cultural planning, right? Um, and so I would say that my schooling gave me the tools to be able to reflect, to say, look, here are the harms that can happen if you take one view of what a community is or what our role is. Uh, and then, you know, you get thrown into the fire and you're forced to be like, why are all these people so dissatisfied? And you think about it and you try something and get it wrong and you think about it some more and you try something else and you work with people and you say, you know, are we on the right track? And that's how we're really trying to, you know, kind of move the field forward in terms of how we do things. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like there's definitely been a shift in how how planning works to be a bit more diverse and inclusive. Having grown up in Vancouver, what are some of the changes that you've seen with the city from when you were a child up until now? I think one of the big things is growing inequality, right? Back in the 90s, it was possible to take basically old industrial land like Yaletown, which was basically just warehouses and like not attractive places to live, build very nice residences for people and people could buy them and you could take the public benefits from all of that new development and build nice amenities and parks and the seawall and that kind of thing. And that worked, right? Uh, it worked for most of the people living in Vancouver. Of course, it never worked for all people living in Vancouver, but it generally was like, okay, this is a good way of doing things. And the Vancouver model, or you know, some people call it Vancouverism, kind of became very attractive 
and was applied to other places in the world. But I think nowadays we are really seeing the limits of that, right? Where kind of quote unquote regular people in Vancouver feel increasingly shut out. We're, we're just realizing you can't just rely only on market developments because of many factors, right? Supply and demand and everything else. And, you know, there are plenty of debates over what exactly the factors are and which levers we should pull. But in general, I think people are recognizing that blindly, if you will, allowing market development isn't sufficient. And it's hard to figure out what tools we can use um, because, you know, first of all, obviously we, we live in a market system for the most part. Municipalities have some powers. They don't have all the powers. They don't have all the financing. They have some financing. And so it really is trying to figure out a new way of doing things that responds to this change in inequality, the need for, for example, more rental housing or family housing that people can afford, the need for more childcare, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great point. We yeah. touched on this briefly. I grew up in Kitsilano, which is a more affluent area in Vancouver. Grew up in Kitsilano. My dream was always to one day own a house and move back to Kitsilano. But as I got older, it became more and more impossible. I think younger people are getting edged out. And without their parents' help, they're not able to stay in the city. Um, have you seen that um, kind of being reflected in your workspace and like the issues that are that are coming up that you see on the daily? Absolutely. I mean, that is probably the biggest issue in people's minds in Vancouver. And I think, you know, I think surveys show that year after year after year, it it is about affordability. It's about housing. Housing is the biggest part of affordability that I think people think about. But obviously, it is also about things like childcare, transportation, food costs, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't think it's um, a surprise to anybody living in Vancouver that it is hard to make ends meet, right? Wages, the growth in wages has typically been less than the growth in expenses. It's a tough, it's a tough situation, right? You know, once again, it is one of those things that it's one of those wicked problems that uh, has a complex solution that the way that we do things isn't set up to do. And so we're trying to, in some ways, change the, the big system of it all. And that, yeah, it, it takes a lot of, it takes time, but it takes a lot of political will and kind of ambitious action from people, from a lot of different people working together. Maybe now stepping uh, back from planning in general, we can talk about some of your past and the lead up to your getting into a career in planning. What was it like growing up as an Asian Canadian and trying to figure out where you wanted to go in your schooling? I feel like I was always resistant to being told what to do. (laughs) And so I, you know, obviously it's in the air, right? You gotta be a doctor, you gotta be a, you know, whatever. And I, I knew definitely by high school that, you know, I did not want to be doing like kind of hard sciences, uh, for the rest of my life. Um, not to say I was immune from any of that pressure because I did for whatever reason, end up taking biology and physics as my other elective, which which worked out for me because I did do relatively well. But, you know, looking back, like, would history probably have made more sense? Probably. But, you know, that's fine. Yeah, but I, I knew for sure that going into high school, I knew I was interested in cities, maybe not as a profession, but definitely it's just something I was interested in. Uh, in grade eight and nine, I had a teacher, Mr. Olson, uh, who was 
very much like, you know, I'm a cool teacher, right? And so we would like write blog posts about what we were interested in. Um, and I remember writing a blog post that was like, we should take a field trip where we go around the city and we learn about what the city is like and that kind of thing. So, you know, that was something I was interested in in grade 10, 11, 12. I took geography. I, I thought the geography class was great. Uh, and, you know, in fact, we did end up going on a field trip where we took a bus around the city and learned about what everything was like. So that was always in my mind. And then, you know, I entered undergrad. I did geography as my undergrad and then eventually went into planning. So I don't know. For me, I felt not so bound by these expectations that, I, you know, everybody around me had, right? I, I guess my parents were never particularly insistent, right? I was doing well in school, so it was kind of like, well, we can't, we can't force you. You're doing pretty well anyway, right? What are we going to tell you to do? There was obviously, like, you could feel kind of the peer expectation, I suppose, where it's like, you know, well, if you're smart, you go into sciences, right? Which I did resent. <laughs> For the record, I did get higher marks than all the doctors that are <laughs> still in our salty, year. Still so salty. <laughs> I'm calling them out. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a common theme that we've been discussing is that it may not be overt expectations, but there are a lot of subtle cultural norms and expectations that may not even necessarily come from our parents, but come from our peers and the media. Yeah, especially in the environment that we grew up in, in with IB, when we were um, surrounded by other you know, Asian students who have these expectations, even if your parents didn't have these expectations for you, their parents had these expectations for them. So as a yeah. whole, I think we, we had kind of a more traditional definition of what success meant after you graduate, what kind of a job you, you get, mm -hmm. how much money yeah. you make. Those all defined kind of what we thought was success, at least in high school. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I, I think I was fortunate enough to be doing well enough in school which is another form of like defining success in a very conservative, if you will, way that I didn't feel the pressure to be like going into a certain field. I was like, look, I'm doing, I'm doing well. Like you can't blame me. So, um, yeah. So I just want to kind of delve a bit into your parents' background. So they, mm -hmm. they immigrated from Macau. Correct. Right. But you were born in Canada. Yes. Do you know what it was like for them back then when they first immigrated here? Yeah, I mean, I know that they immigrated with some friends of theirs, kind of like peers. Uh, and so our kind of three, four families basically grew up in Vancouver together. We would, you know, hang out on weekends, that kind of thing. I'm sure it wasn't easy, right? So, you know, my mom, for example, she didn't have university education when she immigrated. My dad did. And so she went back to get her GED, went and did like community college, and now works for the school board as an educational assistant. So that's not easy. Like, I, don't, I don't know how that, how she even did that. Like she had to raise children, obviously, at the same time as well. So obviously when I, when I look at that context, it's like, okay, you know, no matter what happens to me at this point, like <laughs> I have done well. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not struggling by any means. So I do not want to take that for granted. With, um, 
first generation immigrants, there's always kind of in a lot of conversations with friends, there's a sense of guilt in that, you know, your parents sacrifice so much for you and you have to give back in some way. But I think for you, because your parents never really impose those kind of expectations on you, you are more free to explore what you are interested in and and forge your own definition of what success meant to you. Yeah, I mean, for the record, I mean, the, the guilt is inescapable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. I mean, the guilt is there. I, I just think it just never, it just never entered in the particular direction of like, therefore you should do this with your life. And I don't know, it's not exactly like I'm, particularly radical being a like well-paid government employee with a union and like benefits and a pension like I'm not exactly you know taking a risk here <laughs> so let's, let's be very clear about that yeah I mean the guilt the guilt thing is for sure it's real right I mean um you know I hear about like the the odd jobs that you know my my parents picked up uh in Canada um I remember like listening to um some interview where somebody was like you know at some point you have to acknowledge that like your parents had agency and chose to make this move for themselves to a certain degree right and like that's not something that you can just have to put on your own shoulders, you know? Uh, and so definitely when I heard that, I was like, okay, exhale a little bit. Like, that's very true, right? It, you know, I'm, you know, it's not like I forced my parents to immigrate. I obviously am happy that they did. Um, but, you know, it's a choice they made for themselves as much as it was for us. So... Yeah, I, I think um, I think a lot of that comes down to whether we are happy for ourselves and our parents are happy for us. And I think a lot of the time, once we do find uh, like a career or a passion or something that we're interested in and we are successful, no matter what it is, our parents are happy for us. And I think that's generally the path they're trying to pave. Mm -hmm. It might not necessarily be the one they envision for us, uh, um, but we do get there. And I think that's a large part of where you can breathe that sigh of relief. Like you're saying, like you, you have found a good job. You are stable, more stable than uh, they probably were at your age. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I think at that point they're happy for everybody. So yeah, I think what it comes down to is the stability and security. So something that they didn't have, especially as first generation immigrants, that's something that they want for you. And I think for a lot of Asian parents, how they express that is not always in the best way possible. Um, but I found that with my parents, you know, all the pressure was there throughout high school, throughout university. But as soon as I actually, you know, became my own person, found my own job and my own path, I think a lot of that pressure did come off of my shoulders because they could finally breathe a sigh of relief exactly. themselves and be like, okay, we did something right. She can survive on her own, you know, and we don't mm -hmm. have to help her. And the big question, do your parents know what kind of work you actually do? Do they understand it? Uh, no. I mean, <laughs> the short answer is no. I mean, they know, they know in general what the field is. Like, they know the field exists, right? Like, but start. I think for most people, it's like, they know in general, they're like, oh, yes, hmm. Back when I worked in Chinatown, it was like, oh, yes, Chinatown, hmm, yes, there's that store that opened there. It was like, yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> What I do is I, like, kind of look at what first of all what is policy right what even is policy policy is just a very kind of vague idea of like this is a decision of what we intend to do as a city right like that is what a policy is and that could mean anything so what i do is i make 
policy kind of looking at what options are available and what can be done politically and like what the community wants and like put that against my own expertise and try to make something happen out of it right that's that's very vague that can happen in many different directions what it looks like on a day-to-day basis is like you know i have a lot of meetings and conversations and you know get on a whiteboard but that doesn't mean anything specific to people either so i definitely (laughs) empathize with people who are like okay i'll just kind of believe if that's what you do. <laughs> so maybe going back into your career in planning, what was it like choosing that as a path once you got to the university stage? So I made that decision kind of in my last year of undergrad. Um, it was always in my mind, but I, you know, you have your existential crisis before you like graduate from undergrad, and that's basically oh, what I happened. Like a where, couple. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so in terms of how I chose that, I there there were two main things. One, I knew I loved geography, um, but if you take geography, especially human geography, which is kind of more social oriented, like you know, social in terms of social sciences, you, what you know is that the professors are very good, but they're very theoretical, right? They are leading theorists and academics, right? And so it's all about whatever idea or discourse or like, you know, you know, neocolonial structure or whatever, right? Like it's like these very, very intangible big ideas. And I knew I liked the field, but I didn't want to be dealing with that because it just didn't seem real, right? It wasn't concrete. In a similar vein, when I was an undergrad, I was a co-op student. And one of my co-op terms was working for federal government. And so the work I was doing, like the content of it ultimately was was good. But it was so you were just part of such a huge machine that it it was very unclear like what if any impact your work was making right it was you were just so far removed from the people you are trying to be serving and so you know you put those two things together and you kind of land at this very local level of doing geography work right which municipal planning fits into very well it's very you know it is very tangible it is very concrete there there are development proposals that I've worked on that are being constructed right now that I can like bike by. And, you know, if somebody is upset about something, they will see you in person and they will tell you. So that I like that. Right. I don't mind that. I, I enjoy that. So I found that that really helped for me. I also knew I would probably go into the public sector just intuitively. I I don't know. The idea of working for the private sector just didn't sit like I, it just didn't vibe with me if you will I like the idea that we're doing something for the public good ultimately that is that is the mission of, of the municipal government and so as I was sitting in my uh, room before graduating it was writing all these things out kind of drawing a little Venn diagram and being like okay urban planning looks like the best way of doing all these things. There were other things on the list, right? Like, I think journalist was probably number two. Um, That's still very cool to me. Of course, lawyer was there somewhere, but I didn't want to suffer. (laughs) I can't add this way. I can't imagine you as a lawyer. So I was in debate club uh, at UBC. Like, that's like 90% lawyer wannabe. Like, I don't doubt that you, you don't have the skills. Like, I think you definitely have the skills for it, but I feel like you wouldn't be as happy in that field. Probably. (laughs) So having decided you wanted to go into urban planning, how was the job hunt like once you were out? So, well, the first step after deciding is you go into a master's program. I mean, uh, 
and if you're if you're in a place like Vancouver, especially, you know, popular place to live, lots of people interested in cities. Um, generally, you need a master's degree to be working in that field. If this were like the 80s or 90s, maybe not the case, but definitely by now it is. So I applied to um, the School of Community and Regional Planning. That was a two-year program. I really enjoyed myself, um, you know, really affirmed for me like, oh yeah, this is something I am interested in. The people are cool. The field is interesting. And part of the function, frankly, of going to grad school in Vancouver in particular, like the city where I eventually wanted to work, is you learn about, like, you're basically networking, you're, you're learning about what the ins and outs of the Vancouver planning system is like, you get to know people through your professors and adjunct professors and projects that you do. You know, I was very fortunate to be very clear where I just applied to a job posting um, that, uh, the city had for a planning assistant. Um, I was, I think, like, I ended up working on the team of somebody, like, uh, the bigger team uh, of somebody who was peripherally connected to the SCARP world. And so I think part of it was like, oh, you should at least interview this person, right? At least, you know, see if they're any good. And so ultimately, I got the job, right? And so that was about uh, four and a half years ago. And yeah, it's been great. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't sound like um, you said you you yourself was very lucky. Just for people who are interested in this pursuing this program, what is kind of the job environment like now or when you graduated? Well, it's hard to say because you know, kind of as I mentioned off the top, planning is such a diverse field, right? I know people who are working for nonprofits. I know people who are working for the private sector. I know people who are working for the public sector, and so. In the public sector, you know, right now, right now is probably not great because with COVID and declining municipal revenues, there's probably less of a rush to hire people, right? But that doesn't mean that development is slowing down. It doesn't mean that there is less need for, you know, nonprofit support or whatever. Um, I know people who are working internationally with the Red Cross, for example. I mean, that is one of the saving graces of planning is because it is such a flexible field that I feel it is possible to at least try to branch out a little bit. In your field, maybe when you're studying and also when you're working, what is the diversity like culturally as well as uh, educationally? Yeah, so I'll answer the first part first. Educationally, it's quite diverse, right? No, there's very few, at least in Canada, there's very few programs that are like, this is the urban planning undergrad. I think there's like maybe one in like Calgary or something like that. So, you know, and also planning isn't like a quote unquote, like top line career, right? It's not like engineer, doctor, lawyer, account, I don't know, whatever. And then like planning, like planning is not something that people think about immediately. And so for the most part, people arrive at planning having thought sincerely about it. And we're like, oh, I want to explore this idea a bit more. It is very cool in that sense, because you you just hear a lot of people's perspectives. You get the sense that it is a community of people who were from all over and have this one common interest that they are pursuing. And even within the, the field, like some people are interested in disaster preparedness and some people are interested in development and some people are interested in whatever. Now, the field is quite white. That is just a, a reality of it. And it's it is slowly changing, right? It is gradually changing. Of course, it takes time. Of course, you know, especially as you move more senior through a planning organization, it 
it is predominantly people who are white. But I I do think, like, I sense that it is changing relatively, like, the change is happening faster, is what my intuition tells me. I think there's greater awareness, especially in a place like Vancouver, where people are interested in urban issues. I think people, especially people from minority communities, visible minority communities, realize that planning affects our communities, right? We see the impact that municipal land use decisions or other decisions have on people that we know. And I think there is growing interest to use the field of planning as a means of addressing those issues. So I graduated, or I entered SCARF in 2014. So in the six years since, it seems to me like there's a more diverse cohort. So that's only in the last couple of years. Being that you are Asian Canadian and the work that you do involves Chinatown and trying to kind of rebuild that Asian Canadian heritage within our city, what has your experience been like as an Asian Canadian city planner in predominantly white field of work yeah it's not easy and so i uh was on the what what is called the chinatown transformation team until the end of 2019 and a lot of what we had to do was almost create a new concept or approach to planning right right i mean like not that that sounds that sounds you know, bigger than it actually is. But like one of the big things was understanding what the underlying cultural values of Chinatown are. What is it that makes Chinatown Chinatown? What makes it that compels us to take a different approach to this area? And if you don't have something affirmatively that's like, oh, this is what people value, right? So in our case, it was things like a place where we can express identities, a place where we help and support each other, a place where we respect and honor, you know, memory and heritage, uh, a place that is a living community. Um, These are things that are different from other neighborhoods, or at least not explicitly assumed when you're doing planning normally and so for us it was a big feat of like kind of uh as professionals trained in this field unlearning the kind of the conventional ways of doing things which of course you know very linear very like well first you do this then you do this then you do this and that's the outcome and it's land use plan so we really had to build from the ground up um, the community fortunately is very active and so they are able to um, our job really was to listen and learn from the community to be like, okay, what really are people trying to tell us and how do we bring this into the machinery of government, right? Um, and like really be a translator in that way. You know, so that's what we have to do to the field. And then once you have an understanding of where you want to go, and of course it's a it's an idea, right? It's not like you have the final like, and here's the unified approach to doing planning in a in a Chinatown, right? Then you got to convince people of it, right? And that's not easy. Um, trying to express to somebody who has never been a minority, right, in their city, why it's important to preserve a particular business that looks like you know, well, that they're if they're struggling. Like maybe they just should go out of business because nobody wants their product, right? But it's like, it's about more than that to people who are marginalized, right? Um, that's not easy to do. And so you get very good at being persuasive, right? Like that's what we can do on our end. Once again, the community, because they're so active, have been incredibly influential and um, impactful in advocating for the importance of these things where it's like, look, you know, you may not fully understand this to your core why it's important but people have raised this issue enough that you know that you need to pay attention to it or that council has said it's an important thing and so trust us on this right 
you know, for the most part, we've fortunately been successful in finding allies to be able to do the work that we want to do. So yeah, I think it's um, pretty incredible to hear you talk about how things have changed because um, immigrating here from China, even in a place like Vancouver, which is quite diverse, um, I think growing up here, it was very much about assimilating into mm-hmm. you know Western culture and, and Vancouver culture. However, now even from the ground up, from the city planning perspective, you guys are really consulting with what the people want, what are their values, what actually has meaning to them, and then using their values to define how you plan the city and municipalities. I think that's pretty incredible. So it sounds like you almost act as a community translator, if you will. So you're translating people's experiences, um, taking those, internalizing them, and turning that into what hopefully is a systemic policy change that develops a community that serves not only the city better, but those individuals. Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it. Um, you know, the planning department and other kind of like planning related functions within the city really often acts as the connection point between community and government, just for whatever reason, we are very community facing. And so, yeah, to, you know, I'm trying to convey the community's interests to other people in government. And I'm trying to convey kind of government's, I don't know, responsibilities, positions, whatever you want to call it to the community and we're kind of in the middle trying to make those things work out right where it's like okay well this is what people are interested in this is what we can bring to the table let's figure out what can happen Yeah, so it sounds like you you obviously enjoy what you do. Are there any aspects of being a city planner that isn't so great? Um, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give a bad answer to this. Where yeah, a lot of people you know it's it's frustrating, right? Like uh, you 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 aren't a unilateral decider, and you shouldn't be. But what that means is you can put a lot of work in. You can do your best. You can. Um, you know, put forward what you think is the best possible thing to do, and it can go nowhere, right? It can be voted down a council, it might not have public support, we might not have the resources to do something, you might not even have your colleagues support, right? And that's part of it, right? That's just part of what the work is, especially when you're working in a government and a municipal government um, with limited resources. Now, I, I actually like a bit of an uphill fight. (laughs) I think that's just part of my personality. And so it's like, I find that I, you know, when something gets shut down, it's like, okay, well, time to find the next way to do this, right? What's the next strategy to take on to try to get what I think is the best solution or best proposal through? And maybe as our final question to you, what do you have planned for the future? Whether it's personally or career-wise. Are we talking like 2021? I just want to leave my apartment. (laughs) (laughs) The bar is low. (laughs) You know, I'll take what I can get. What do I have planned for myself? Um... I don't know. My life is pretty good right now, to be honest. So <laughs> I just want to be able to see people indoors in a crowd of 50 people or more. That's really, that's all that's on my mind right now. On a different day, maybe uh, you you will get a different answer from me. But, uh, <laughs> Baby steps, in, I like it. Yeah, in month nine of quarantine, I'm just like, that's all I want. <laughs> well, when restrictions are over, I'm still gonna cut your hair, right? That's right. That's, uh, that's what you can look forward to. I that's right. I'm looking forward to Kathy cutting my hair. Who says, who says bureaucrats are risk adverse?
Thank you for listening to Chasing Expectations. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, please give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Everyone has a unique story to tell. If you would like to share yours, you can reach out to us through our email or Instagram in the description. Until next time.